This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of medical treatment, sexual content, murder, and graphic injuries that may be disturbing. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In the wake of World War II, Americans were desperate to establish some sense of normalcy. In the capital, this impulse manifested as McCarthyism. Suspected communists were rounded up, interviewed, and ridiculed before the nation, often with little or no evidence other than hearsay. But this wasn't the only way such strict societal values were imposed. All true Americans were expected to seek out and destroy anyone who didn't belong in a respectable society. Those who even slightly violated the social contract were to be shunned, outcast, or even imprisoned. While many small-town citizens were victims of minor witch hunts, beloved Dr. Sam Shepard became a unique case. He wasn't targeted because of his repeated infidelities, nor the fact that he'd made a show of his mistress around town. No, Dr. Shepard's community only turned against him when, on the morning of July 4, 1954, his wife was brutally bludgeoned to death in their bedroom. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm delighted to offer Alistair some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Dr. Sam Shepard, an osteopath who specialized in neurosurgery and adultery. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. 
This is our first episode on Dr. Samuel Shepard, an osteopathic neurosurgeon accused of murdering his wife in 1954. Sam and Marilyn Shepard seemed like the perfect American sweethearts, but their relationship was full of secrets. Today, we'll follow their love story from its passionate beginnings to its horrific end. Next time, we'll track Sam's controversial trial, passing a question that has yet to be answered. Who killed Marilyn Reese Shepard? All this and more coming up. Stay with us. In the 1920s, the affluent suburb of Cleveland Heights, Ohio, saw the birth of two people whose soured relationship would take the nation by storm. The first was Marilyn Reese, whose mother died when she was only six years old. Her grieving father sent Marilyn to live with her aunt and uncle, likely traumatizing the poor girl even further. On the other side of town, Sam Shepard's childhood couldn't have been more stable. Sam's father was a successful doctor, and Sam was born the youngest of three boys with a proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. However, Dr. Shepard ran a tight ship. Sam grew up under pressure with clear expectations he had to meet. Like becoming a doctor, for instance. The family business was thrust upon Sam and his brothers, regardless of their true passions. Still, as a kid, Sam found his passion in sports. Perhaps that passion was what drew in Marilyn Reese as she first laid eyes on Sam. They were only in middle school, but Sam was clearly a talented basketball player, shooting hoops and scuffling across the gymnasium floor. Interest peaked. Marilyn waltzed over to one of Sam's teammates and told him she'd like to meet that boy there. The boy might have grinned as he relayed the message. A girl in the grade above them wanted to meet Sam. Courtside, Sam gladly introduced himself to the smitten girl. The rest was history. Or so it seemed. The two preteens passed notes to each other in class as often as they could get away with it. Even in high school, when Sam's father cracked down on his grades, he maintained his relationship with Marilyn. Sam was always the most rebellious of the three brothers. And when Marilyn graduated a year before Sam, they stayed together long distance. They even exchanged letters about Marilyn's dream wedding. When Sam himself graduated a year later, their relationship was still going strong. It was Sam's relationship with his father that burdened him. Many of Sam's friends enlisted in the military, fighting on the fronts of World War II after graduation. Others went off to college sports. Sam himself was offered multiple athletic scholarships, but his father wouldn't hear of it. He insisted Sam carry on the family trade and become an osteopath. Osteopathy is a unique field of medicine that takes a holistic approach to health and well-being. Doctors of osteopathic medicine, or DOs, practice within a large variety of medical specialties. 
Osteopathic doctors are strong advocates of preventative health care and generally focus therapies that support healthy lifestyle habits. Unlike MDs, who graduate from conventional medical schools, DOs obtain their degrees from colleges that teach osteopathy. This curriculum involves four years of study and, like traditional medical schools, is followed by internships, residencies, and fellowships. Currently in the medical community, DOs and MDs share immense mutual respect, but this was not always the case. In the 1940s, medical doctors were far less willing to consider other schools of thought that were less conventional. This is thankfully much less of an issue today. In the mid-1940s, Sam headed to Hanover College, completing his medical school preparation courses in just two years. Apparently, summer courses helped him expedite his undergraduate degree. He graduated with ease. Romantic success was a different story. Throughout Sam's undergraduate career, his dynamic with Marilyn was rocky at best. Perhaps trying to gauge Sam's devotion, Marilyn once wrote to Sam saying she'd been asked on a date. Sam wrote back, encouraging Marilyn to go out with the other man. And this wasn't a one-time occurrence. Whenever Marilyn was asked out, Sam encouraged her to go. When the tables were reversed, however, Marilyn scoffed at the prospect that Sam might want to date anyone but her. Though their partnership went through waxing and waning periods, even leading to a temporary split, they always ended up back together. Their next hurdle, however, was a big one. At age 20, Sam was accepted to the same medical school that his father and two older brothers had attended, the College of Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons in Los Angeles. So, Sam headed west, but he wasn't alone. Marilyn would eventually move too, and likely nudge Sam to do what any dignified man in his shoes should, propose. The two were married on February 21, 1945. Unlike the fanciful ceremony Marilyn once wrote about in her love letters to Sam, their wedding was held in a small chapel in Hollywood, California. They didn't even honeymoon. Sam was simply too busy with his studies. Or so he claimed. He seemed to have plenty of time for socializing. During Sam's schooling, he and Marilyn quickly befriended some of the area's most successful doctors and their wives. Among them, Dr. Randall Chapman, or Chappie, as he was known to friends. Chappie was a well-to-do neurological surgeon. Sam admired him and soon followed his example by pursuing neurosurgery as his specialty. Neurosurgery is a branch of surgery focused on the nervous system, specifically involving the brain and spinal cord. Like medical doctors, osteopaths can become neurosurgeons if they complete a neurosurgical residency. This was something that would have been available to Sam, but he definitely would have had his work cut out for him. Because of the immensely complex training involved, neurosurgery residencies in the United States take longer than that of any other medical specialty. This, in part, explains why it's such a financially lucrative career. Other than a genuine interest in this specialty, 
Some doctors may choose this career path because of its high income potential. It's usually a rule of thumb, the more complicated and risky the surgical specialty, the higher the financial return. This could have been what Sam was thinking. While he may not have been thrilled about osteopathy, he might have been attracted to the fiscal benefits of a specialty like neurosurgery. A fair point. Chappie was extremely well off. It's very possible that Sam's career decision was inspired by his friend's wealth. There were other ways Chappie influenced Sam too, and not for the better. For years, Chappie had carried on an affair behind his wife's back. Whenever his wife, Jo, was away at their vacation home on the central California coast, Chappie was reportedly with another woman, his L.A. wife. Before long, Sam succumbed to the toxic influence of his mentor. At some point towards the end of his time at medical school, Sam began seeing at least one other woman. Perhaps this was Sam's way of reclaiming ownership over his life, but his infidelity wouldn't be without repercussion. Coming up, Sam and Marilyn's romance takes a treacherous turn. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. In 1947, 23-year-old Sam Shepard was working towards a respected medical career and cheating on his wife. It's unclear whether Marilyn Shepard had any clue, but if she did, she certainly didn't confront the issue head-on. She had more important business to attend. She was pregnant with their first child, and Marilyn was extremely concerned about the pregnancy. Her own mother had died while giving birth to Marilyn's younger brother, 
which seriously traumatized Marilyn. She may have been afraid she'd endure the same fate. Luckily, in May 1947, Marilyn delivered a healthy boy. His name was Samuel Reese Shepard, named after his father and lovingly called Chip, as in Chip off the old block. Marilyn presumably felt both relief and joy, but Sam didn't seem to share in her elation. He grew distant from both Marilyn and their newborn. He was more preoccupied with his continuing affairs, and the challenging hours of a medical program gave him a perfect cover to hide behind. Marilyn might have grown bitter, feeling alone in new parenthood. As she and Sam drifted apart, Marilyn clung to the lifelines she knew, returning home to her family in Cleveland frequently. However, during one visit home, she received a troubling letter from Sam, wherein he all but admitted to an affair and hinted that he wanted a divorce. Though he didn't outright say it, Sam's intent was clear. Enraged, Marilyn went straight to Sam's father, Dr. Richard Shepard, and showed him the letter. Richard was in disbelief. This wasn't the boy he had raised. Intending to knock some sense into Sam, Richard ordered him home at once, and when Sam arrived, his family staged something of an intervention. They forced him to admit his misdeeds and talk things out with his wife. By the end of it, the struggling couple had agreed to continue on with their marriage, but not without some necessary changes, likely suggested by Marilyn. First and foremost, Sam would have to leave LA. Second, he would work for his father. Sam reluctantly agreed. After all, he'd obtained the necessary experience as a resident in neurosurgery. It was time to turn over a new leaf. So as soon as Sam completed his initial training, Sam and Marilyn returned to Cleveland. There, Sam began his first job at his father's osteopathic teaching hospital. A teaching hospital is simply a hospital that is connected to a medical school, allowing their students to learn through observational and hands-on experience. Osteopathic teaching hospitals are those that specialize in osteopathic medicine, as opposed to hospitals that adhere to the allopathic or traditional systems of treatment. In general, teaching hospitals are pretty desirable work environments for doctors for a number of reasons. For one, these facilities provide reasonable work hours, and staff doctors under their employ face less liability issues. Specifically, their doctors aren't medically liable for the patients they treat, which takes some otherwise added pressure off of these instructors. Staff doctors also enjoy instructing and training future healthcare professionals, offering a rewarding and fulfilling role for them. For Sam, who was fresh off his residency, this was a great opportunity. The osteopathic teaching hospital was a perfect place for him to continue his education. But more than knowledge, Dr. Sam Shepard saw the new job as a golden opportunity to expand his notoriety. Always one to enjoy the spotlight, Sam soon became a genuine small-town hero. Bayview Hospital was one of the largest of its kind in the area and the only one that specialized in osteopathic medicine. 
It was also well respected in the community for its responsiveness to emergency calls. One morning, a five-year-old boy arrived at the hospital suffering from a critical lung condition and no longer breathing. With no time to waste, Sam surgically inserted a breathing tube into the boy's trachea. The tube began to drain infected mucus from the sick boy's lungs, but then his heart suddenly stopped. Sam sprang into action. He cut the boy's chest open and began to physically massage the stopped heart. After a few incredibly tense seconds, the heart began to beat again. Sam had rescued this boy from the clutches of death with his bare hands. Sam's successful high-risk operation was evidence of his raw skill as a surgeon, but it showed horrible judgment. This isn't a typical osteopathic treatment or one that's part of any medical textbook for that matter. Cutting the chest open for cardio resuscitation would be unbearably dangerous and ultimately inefficient because it would significantly delay getting to the heart muscle, the ventricle. The brain can barely survive four minutes without oxygen, so it would have instead been much smarter to initiate CPR or a series of external cardiac chest compressions. This would have immediately brought circulation to the heart without the need for any daring massage technique. Furthermore, physically reaching the heart would require breaking the sternum and possibly some ribs and could cause massive blood loss. In any case, though, it worked. And for Sam, saving this young boy's life must have made for a pretty cool story. Sam became the talk of the town. And when the press came knocking, he happily obliged. While many saw him as a hero, some colleagues began to view the upstart legacy doctor as boastful and arrogant. He needed to be knocked down a peg. At the time, Sam seemed oblivious, and he was certainly distracted. Less than a year after his return to Ohio, Sam met a young laboratory technician named Susan Hayes, who also worked at Bayview Hospital. Since Sue didn't have a car, Sam volunteered to give her rides to the hospital. Some days, Sue would come to the shepherd's home and wait for Sam in the passenger seat of his car, in full view of Marilyn. Marilyn hated this, probably because she knew what was really going on. In fact, the whole neighborhood seemed to know. The pair was recklessly indiscreet. Between 1951 and 1953, Sam often pulled over to make love to Sue in his car, just streets away from Marilyn. Though whispers around town likely bothered Marilyn, there was little she could do. Acknowledging a second affair would most likely end in a drawn-out divorce, something that would leave her financially vulnerable. And finding another husband with a child from her first marriage wouldn't exactly be easy. In 1950s suburbia, there was little a housewife could do but look the other way. So she may have seen it as a lucky break when Sue Hayes left Bayview for Los Angeles in early 1954. But Sam wasn't ready to let Sue go just like that. 
he scheduled a work trip to California in March of that year. While he left his wife and son at his friend Chappie's ranch upstate, he headed down the coast, eager to indulge in his old ways. It soon became clear in Los Angeles that those old ways weren't as fulfilling as they'd once been. Though Sam and Sue went out partying, Sam quickly devolved into a drunken mess, and Sue was not impressed. Humiliated, Sam returned north to his wife and child with renewed perspective. It seems his debauchery in LA had been the wake-up call he needed. As he drove back to Chappie's ranch, he vowed to be better in his marriage. We don't know exactly what Sam said to Marilyn the following evening. It's unlikely that he admitted to the extent of his infidelity, but whatever words were exchanged between them, the couple seemed to patch things up. Shortly thereafter, at home in Cleveland, Marilyn discovered that she was pregnant with her second child. In June of 1954, observers would later say that Sam and Marilyn seemed more passionate than ever. It was a remarkable turn of events. The Shepherds had saved their marriage from the brink of collapse. They now had everything. A house in a beautiful lakeside suburb, a large and supportive network of friends, a stable income, and Chip, their vibrant and healthy seven-year-old son. They even had a dog named Koke. Best of all, Sam and Marilyn's rekindled romance would soon be personified in the form of a new baby, due around the winter holidays. Dr. Sam Shepard was finally getting his act together. And again, nothing's ever quite as it seems. A storm may very well have been brewing in the Shepherd household on the morning of Saturday, July 3rd, 1954. That day, Sam went into work at the hospital. Afterwards, Marilyn and Sam had a relaxing evening planned. Cocktails with their neighbors, the Aherns, followed by dinner for both families at the Shepherd household. Between them, Four adults and three children enjoyed a meal that Marilyn had prepared, including Sam's favorite dessert, blueberry pie with ice cream. By 10.30 p.m., Marilyn was cleaning up, but the night wasn't yet over. Sam sent Chip to bed, and Don Ahern brought his children home before returning to the Shepherd household to watch a movie. The Aherns would later recall that Marilyn was sitting on Sam's lap, the very picture of a happily married couple. By the time the credits rolled, both Sam and Marilyn had dozed off. Don and Nancy Ahern tried to leave the house without waking their hosts, but Marilyn was too light a sleeper. Yawning, she wished her guests goodbye and they left. It was about 12.30 in the morning. Whether or not Marilyn locked the door behind them will forever be shrouded in mystery, as will the rest of that night. We can only be certain of one thing. By five o'clock in the morning of July 4th, 1954, 
Marilyn Shepard and her unborn baby were dead. Coming up, we explore Marilyn's gruesome murder and the manhunt that followed. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. Together since middle school, Sam and Marilyn Shepard had been through it all. Their relationship had endured distance, lean times, and infidelity, but somehow they'd come out of these hardships stronger than ever. Until the night of July 3rd, 1954, when everything that Marilyn and Sam had worked so hard to build came crashing down. Just before six in the morning, on July 4, 1954, 30-year-old Dr. Sam Shepard called his neighbor, Bay Village Mayor Spencer Houck. Over the phone, Sam cried, My God, Spen, get over here quick. I think they've killed Marilyn. Spencer and his wife Esther frantically got dressed and drove down the street to the Shepard house. They walked into disarray. Sam seemed freaked out, blood flecked his body, and it was clear a struggle had taken place. The drawers of Sam's desk were pulled out and his medical bag was turned upside down, tools spilling out of it. While Spencer spoke to Sam, Esther went upstairs. In the bedroom, she found Marilyn lying face up on the mattress, nearly unrecognizable. Marilyn was half on the bed and half off, with her feet almost touching the floor. Her clothes had been partially removed, exposing her bloody, wounded body. But the more than two dozen wounds weren't enough to kill her on their own. As a result of the brutal violence, Marilyn had lost too much blood. Severe blood loss, also known as exsanguination, is truly an awful way to die. It may only take a matter of minutes for death to occur from extreme bleeding, and the speed and amount of blood loss have a large influence over this. The more excessive the hemorrhaging, the quicker brain death will occur. This is because as less blood flows to the brain, the organ will absorb less oxygen and eventually shut down. 
Given the horrible physical trauma inflicted upon Marilyn's body, she probably died relatively quickly after being assaulted. The serious damage to her head causes one to question how much of the attack she was actually conscious for. Any concrete details relating to the suspect or Marilyn's final moments are unfortunately speculative at best. It's unclear what exactly was going on when she took her last breath. It did, however, appear as though she dragged a blanket over herself in the final moments, and her wounded face was turned toward the door as if she'd been begging for help. Alarmed, Esther Hauck returned downstairs to her husband Spencer, who was questioning Sam. Bloodied and disoriented, Sam claimed Marilyn's cries for help woke him up, but he was having serious trouble recalling much more. Still, he'd have to try his best to scrape together an account of the night because shortly after six o'clock in the morning, Officer Fred Drenken arrived at the home, and he wanted answers. So Sam laid down his story as well as he could remember. It went like this. Early in the morning of July 4th, Sam fell asleep on his living room couch. Marilyn was next to him, and their friends Don and Nancy Ahern were there too. Hours later, between three and five o'clock in the morning, Sam woke up alone in the living room. He heard shouting coming from upstairs, so he climbed the steps to figure out what was happening. This is where his memory gets seriously shaky. Sam claimed to have encountered a white bipedal form. Now, his terminology here is a bit unsettling. After all, a white bipedal form sounds more like a yeti than a person. Court documents have seemingly ruled out the non-human possibility, and Sam never fully clarified what he meant with his description of his attacker. Whoever, or whatever it was, struck Sam, most likely with fists, as soon as he entered the bedroom. Sam was knocked out cold. When he came to, he saw Marilyn on the bed, seemingly dead. Full of adrenaline, he ran to check on his child, Chip, who was sound asleep. At that point, Sam heard a loud noise in the kitchen and flew downstairs to pursue it before chasing the figure out the kitchen door. The two ran to the nearby beach of Lake Erie where Sam grappled with the figure before getting knocked out once again. When he woke up, the intruder was gone. The statement felt vague to the police, who needed a lead they could run with. Sam's foggy memory simply didn't seem to have the information they needed. It wasn't hard to understand why. According to his account, Sam had been struck hard on the head twice, which could very well have left him concussed. Concussions can often lead to short-term memory loss. This is physiologically the result of swelling or direct trauma in and around the brain's memory centers, like the hippocampus and temporal lobes. This recall deficit would involve a pretty solid concussion, though, and naturally a pretty severe hard knock to the noggin. 
It's tough to say whether Sam was telling the truth about his memory lapse. Memories can actually become hazy after less intense concussions too, but they're usually recovered later with relative clarity. Sam would have experienced some very serious head trauma to completely forget an entire night. We also know that as horrible as Marilyn's murder was, he did suffer serious injuries. But to many of the officers, Sam's vague recollection seemed more like an attempt to withhold self-incriminating information. Two homicide detectives were called to the scene, but the case kicked into high gear when word of the crime reached Dr. Samuel Gerber, the county coroner. Notably, Dr. Gerber was quite familiar with Dr. Sam Shepard. He'd seen all the positive press pedestaling the so-called hero doctor and he was no fan. What's more, Gerber was also nursing political ambitions and hoped to gain enough popularity to run for mayor of Cleveland. He likely knew that after the grisly murder of Marilyn Shepard, the public would be desperate for answers. It was the perfect opportunity to display his investigative ability. So when Coroner Gerber arrived at the Shepherd home just before eight o'clock that morning, he quickly shoved out the bystanders and began his own assessment. He surely wouldn't be guided by the police officers who believed Sam's disorderly desk and medical bag pointed to an attempted robbery. And when they found a bag of what appeared to be stolen items in the backyard bushes, the theory grew even more viable. But then, there was the question of Marilyn's brutal bludgeoning. It seemed hard to believe that a simple thief would have beaten her so severely. The public apparently agreed, and they all too easily generated a second theory. One Coroner Gerber found particularly compelling. A rumor spread that Sam was sterile, and the baby Marilyn carried belonged to none other than Mayor Hauk. To keep his wife from spilling the secret, Sam offed her. And the press ran with every rumor it could find, dragging the once glorified Dr. Sam Shepard through the mud. This put pressure on the police to drop the burglary gone wrong investigation and pursue the idea that Sam had killed his wife. So within hours of the murder, detectives showed up at the hospital where Sam was being treated for his concussion and questioned him. And when Sam hired a lawyer the next day, the situation flared. Over the next few days, the press hounding was so bad, Sam decided to keep his son Chip home from Marilyn's funeral. Sam himself attended in a wheelchair. Even as Sam laid flowers on Marilyn's grave, reporters and photographers scrutinized his every move. One article in the Cleveland News reported that Sam's jaw was visibly swollen. He wore a neck brace and he couldn't fully open one of his eyes. Another article stated that Sam wept and silently mouthed his wife's name as she was lowered into the ground. He was injured and grieving and couldn't catch a break. 
A week later, when he returned to work at the hospital, the media claimed his grief had been inauthentic. To make matters worse, the Cleveland Press ran an editorial calling for the coroner's office to pool their resources and crack down on Marilyn's murderer. Coroner Gerber gladly obliged. He could have easily interviewed his prime suspect in private and left it at that. Instead, he held an inquest and opened the doors to the town. Gerber clearly believed in the old adage, never let a crisis go to waste. In late July, spectators gathered in a local high school gymnasium as Dr. Gerber dove deep into Sam's shameful past. There was no shortage of scandal. His questions quickly turned to Sam and Marilyn's intimate marital life, Sam's alleged sterility, and finally, his affair with one Susan Hayes. Sam repeatedly lied about his affair with Sue. The multi-day event was practically a witch trial. As some of Sam's family members tried to speak in his defense, they were booed. At the end of it all, Gerber released his inevitable conclusion. Dr. Samuel Shepard was Marilyn Shepard's killer. This official statement allowed the press to abandon any pretext of objectivity. Soon, an alarming amount of newspapers openly called for his arrest. In the era of picture-perfect suburbia, Sam had been cast as the perfect villain. Perhaps he felt betrayed by the fast condemnation from those he'd once considered friends. Maybe he felt humiliated as his private life was mercilessly made public. But there was nothing worse than when he was caught in a lie. Detectives in Los Angeles had questioned Sue Hayes. She admitted to the affair and as the press and public saw it, if Sam Shepard lied about this, what else might he have lied about? Rumors and gossip continued to fly. By July 30th, 1954, thousands of Cleveland residents received their morning newspaper. The headline? Why isn't Sam Shepard in jail? Under pressure, detectives got a warrant and headed to the Shepherd home. At about 10.30 p.m. on July 30th, they arrested Sam. His charge? Murder in the first degree. The fate of the famed doctor turned killer now teetered in the hands of the court. Next week on Medical Murders, we'll follow the trial of Sam Shepard as he lands in the global spotlight. Then we'll take a look at the legacy of Marilyn's tragic murder as it inspired a classic TV show and film. We'll examine the question that has yet to be satisfyingly answered. Did Sam Shepard kill his wife? Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Alistair, thank you very much. 
For more information on Sam Shepard, among the many sources we used, we found The Wrong Man, the final verdict on the Dr. Sam Shepard murder case by James Neff, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Eric Stankey, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Thank you.